Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It's brought to you this time by Squarespace and Eero. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Jason Snell. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Jason. What's going on in space? A lot of stuff. Mm. Just a lot of stuff. This uh, this episode is going to be fun. We have a bunch of stuff to follow up on, and you know, stories continue to unfold. And then we have an anniversary, and then at the end, we're going to talk a little bit about for all mankind, a new space show on Apple TV Plus. Yeah, we are. But first, I, I want to say that this episode, in true like uh, exciting marketing movie, like old style movie serial fashion, shall be called episode one hundred and eleven, Escape. Of the mold. <laughs> All right, uh, I'm committing it to being the title right now. <laughs> wow! It in the wow. Escape of the mole. It's, Escape of the. I mole. mean, so we've been talking about Mars Insights mole, which is you know, it's a mole. It's cute. It's a nice name. It digs in. It digs a hole to learn what's down in the in the soil of Mars. And last time we told you that they they uh, I think two times ago we told you that they like pressed another instrument against it and we're going to try to see if that worked. And then last time we said, "Aha, it did work and the mole is burrowing again." Yay! And now we need to report that the mole has ejected itself from the hole, at least partially. So remember it was on its way down. It was about a foot down and then all that you described unfolded. <laughs> And they said, hey, we got it pinned against the side, and uh, it turns out that it is backed out about about halfway out of its hole, uh-huh. and it's just kind of hanging out, semi-submerged. And you can see a picture in the show notes. It's it's uh, disheartening to see. I don't know at this point how much NASA and JPL have talked about the the reasons they may think this has happened. Uh, I've read one article that, again, is pointing to like the unusual soil conditions that they weren't They've just encountered surprises at this yeah. location. And the thing is, you can't go somewhere else because inside is a lander, right? So they have to make this work or or not work. There, there's not an option to go somewhere else. But isn't it fascinating that, that whatever the compositions here are, it's just like they made assumptions about what that soil was going to be like. And mm-hmm. it, it is not. <laughs> it's not, not that way. We talked about when it got stuck initially, how the dirt was supposed to like fall back in on itself so it could have friction to continue to hammer down. And that's not happening. It's clumpy. It's, it's all these things. And so yeah, a, a, sort of a, a series of unfortunate surprises for the, the Insight team. But it's hard not to look at this as Mars basically just saying, ooh, ooh, what is this yeah, thing? Stop. Get stop. it out. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> in, a, in typical NASA fashion, though, you know, the, the, the agency does a pretty good job at, you know, when there's stories like this, if there's something good going on, they want to try to balance it, right? Just, you know, it's, sure. you got to share the good with the bad. And so they do point out that there is other science, other instruments on Insight are functioning perfectly normally they've detected like 150 seismic events 23 of which have already been confirmed as mars quakes this was a big deal remember they're going to be able to put a seismometer uh at the red planet and really understand its internal structure the the mole that we've been talking about was to measure temperature and some other things but the seismometer side of things uh, is working well and they seem to be very happy with the the data they're collecting and the the analysis that will be coming out over the next many years from that data i'm sure it'll prove out to be very interesting so insight is far from a bust but this particular instrument continues to be uh, troublesome yes the mole 
is uh, continuing to cause trouble. But yeah, there's a lot going on here. This is a cool Pesky mission. It's learning a lot, but that mole is, yeah, Mars doesn't want it. Mars it rejects doesn't. the mole. <laughs> it seems that way. No mole. It really, it really does seem that way. So we're going to keep an eye on this story and we'll, we will continue to update everybody, <laughs> yeah. but you we'll know, tell you where time, the mole is. We'll just check in yeah. every so often. Where's the mole where's, today? Where's hmm. the mole? Anytime I see insight come up, you know, I've got a space Twitter list and a bunch of RSS feeds. And every time I see them like, oh no, <laughs> what now? Yeah. yeah <laughs> the adventures of the mole continue. Let's change gears a little bit and talk about commercial crew. Oh yeah. Because just yesterday, as we record this, mm-hmm. the Boeing Starliner capsule underwent a pad abort test in Texas. Of course, a pad abort test is it's different than an in-flight abort test, which actually the Starliner will not undergo at this point. But this is uh, to pull the capsule away and the crew away from a, a a stacked rocket on the launch pad. So if something happens to the launch pad that puts the crew in danger and they're in the capsule, you can pull them away very quickly. It's really interesting. This was live streamed. At the insistence of Jim Bridenstine, the NASA administrator, uh, administrator, for the sake of transparency for the taxpayer. So Boeing wasn't going to, to live stream this. And you could kind of tell, I watched it live yesterday, and you could kind of tell, like, yeah, they don't do this very often. Like, we're so used to SpaceX, and honestly, even NASA has gotten really good at those web video deals where, you know, you have all the different camera angles, and you have someone uh, explaining what's going on. Boeing! Working on that, you know, but uh, I think they did a good job with it. And it took off from a test stand in Texas, pushing uh, 5G with a force and then reaching about 4,500 feet in altitude. Uh, At that point, the service module was jettisoned. It crashed into the Texas landscape in a very dramatic fashion on the live stream. And the Starliner touched down safely on its airbags. Starliner is interesting because it is designed to be reusable. And part of that reusability is not landing in the ocean unless there's an emergency. So if this were to happen, with crew or they had an in-flight abort uh, on a on a mission, then landing in the ocean is clearly what you have to do. But it is designed under sure. normal, you know, parameters to land on land. So it has, of course, it has parachutes, which we'll talk about in a second. But it uses an airbag system to help soften that landing and all that, you know, the landing and everything, the airbags all deployed hmm. and it touched down. The whole thing took like 90 seconds or something. It was yeah. all very fast. But uh, really interesting to see because, you know, we haven't gotten a good look at Starliner because it's it's just not – Boeing just isn't as, as forthright with their PR as these other companies are. And so it was really uh, exciting to see it in action finally. Yeah, it's good. Uh, I, I appreciate the, that line from Bridenstine about transparency that, like, no, we should show you this, that this is going on. This is sort of come – I think is expected now. So yeah, I it's think good so. to see it, it moving forward. There was uh, an issue, and at this point, again, we're recording the day after, so we're still sort of in like this just happened phase, and Mm. and this may change. Uh, But Starliner has three main parachutes, and during the test, only two deployed. And that is uh, deemed acceptable. You definitely need two to safely uh, bring the capsule back to the ground at at a safe speed, if you will. So while it's designed for three, it can fly with two. And at this point, Boeing says that while they're going to look into it, it does not impact their orbital flight test, which is supposed to be on December 17th, where they're going to take a Starliner, not this Starliner, a different capsule, and take that on an uncrewed mission atop an Atlas V rocket, which is, that's all at Kennedy and like being prepared. That's really just in, what, four or five weeks from now. And they say that that's not going to impact that that flight but it's interesting because parachutes have been sort of a uh, a point of of 
trouble when mm-hmm. it comes to commercial crew. SpaceX with Crew Dragon has had issues as well. And we'll see if that 17th flight, you know, December 17th flight takes off. I expect that Boeing will have to have more parachute testing inserted into their schedule before they're ready for crew. But a, a notable mark on what was otherwise what seems to be a, a really good test flight yesterday. Yeah. And uh, speaking of parachutes, uh, SpaceX is, they have a couple of things that they're waiting for. Um, you know, they have to test their crew escape system, the one that exploded that they had to redo. Um, they're going to have to test that. Another thing, though, that stands between SpaceX and doing their commercial crew launch with an actual crew is qualifying the parachute. They've had lots of problems. They ha- We mentioned it before. They, they had to go back to the, you know, the manufacturer, back to the factory. They had to do a new parachute design and then start testing that. And they've been doing a bunch of uh, a test of the new parachute design. Um, apparently, they've done, uh, as of this recording, 13 consecutive tests that were deemed successful, which is a good sign. However, good. only the most recent of those was the multi-shoot with the Mark III parachute that they're using. And Elon Musk pointed out on Twitter, I thought he wasn't using Twitter anymore, but apparently he is still, um, that you, what you need to do is you need to do 10 of those multi-parachute Mark III parachute tests before they consider it qualified, 10 successful ones. So they've got more testing to do, but it sounds like um, at least so far SpaceX is um, optimistic about the fact that they've, uh, they've made these changes to their parachute design that is going to get this parachute qualified for Crew Dragon. It's obviously a big deal. You need those parachutes mm-hmm. to, to do what they're supposed you to come do. come back? Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I find it interesting that that is an issue for both of these programs, uh, kind of here at the, at the last minute. But uh, inching closer to commercial crew launch, without a doubt, th- this is a big step for, for both companies. I look forward to what's next. Yeah, I feel like we were, last fall, we were talking about how we were close to being able to get commercial I crew know. launched. And here yeah. we are a year later in the year of commercial crew. And uh, it turns out it was mm. the year of commercial crew not happening, <laughs> but next year, maybe next year, next year. Yeah. I mean, it'll beat the SLS. That's probable. Wow. Right. That's a bad, that's a bet I don't want to take on either side. That's losing all the way around. There's this, uh, this neat story about Voyager 2. We spoke about Voyager, mm-hmm. how long ago when Voyager 2 was in the news last, when it, it left the heliosphere, uh, it was but, a, about uh, a year? Uh, yeah, it was a couple, it was about a year ago, right? So the, the Voyager 1 left the heliosphere, which is defined as this sort of like the area of influence of our sun's uh, of our sun in space, so it's the, it's emitting particles, and the the magnetic field of the of the sun holds sway, and then beyond a certain point, uh, that drops away, and instead you get kind of cosmic rays, and the magnetic field of the sun is gone, and uh, it's a very different kind of environment. So uh, that's about eleven billion miles out from the Earth. Voyager one already went through that, but Voyager two did that last year, uh, almost exactly a year ago, and so there are a bunch of new papers. This year, I think it's amazing that we have uh, machines from the mid '70s that are still generating scientific papers in in uh, in 2019. That's that's incredible. So, what they found about Voyager 2 is that it's not in what they consider undisturbed interstellar space. Um, instead, they say it's in a region that's called a, a perturbed transitional region hmm. just beyond the heliosphere. And I thought um, this article that we'll link to from uh, that NASA wrote up, uh, I thought was really a good, it's a good metaphor, which is think of the sun 
uh, and the solar system as a ship moving through space like a ship would move on the ocean. And the idea is that the sun and its, and, and you've got to think not just the sun, but the sun and its magnetic field as a ship, which means that it's pushing along as the sun moves through the galaxy. Uh, it is, it's got a bow and that's the magnetic field. And there's turbulence as interstellar space breaks against the bow of the sun's magnetic field. And if you think of it that way, that's where Voyager 2 and, and Voyager 1 are right now, is they're in this turbulent area where whatever is happening in interstellar space is bumping up against the sun's magnetic field. And, and, and so you end up with this perturbed transitional region. So, you know, this is a thing that, um, what, and, and you may be saying, well, wait a second, Voyager 1 already discovered this in 2012. It's true, except for this, which is one observation, you don't know whether Voyager 1 is seeing something that is common or whether that it is unique about where Voyager 1 is. Voyager 2 provides confirmation and says, we see that here too, right? And they're not close to each other. So that is cool because now we have like two different data points from this very far out region uh, beyond the solar system. Um, and it shows that what Voyager 1 saw was uh, was pretty accurate. And keeping in mind these 1970s contraptions are far, far, far away and still relaying data. Um, they're they're 16.5 light hours away from Earth. So if you think about how long it takes at the speed of light for their data to come back, it is um, more than half a day. They're, they're, they're very far away in terms of light hours. And, um, and another little tidbit about Voyager, since we're on the subject, is just that it is estimated that um, Voyager will have enough power generation capacity in its little uh, nuclear power supply to last until about 2025. So there will come a time fairly soon when these little machines will be silent forever. Um, but we, they, they still got probably five or six years of science left in them. It's an amazing story, right? This is a region of, of space that we knew basically nothing about. Everything right. was theorized, right? And, and to have not one, like you said, two instrument packages now confirm what it is like there, the, and uh, helping unwrap this mystery of what happens at the edge of, of the sun's sphere of influence is it's so fascinating, right? Because it is, it is now far beyond our solar system in the way that we normally think about. It's beyond our solar system in the way that it kind of actually is, if, if that distinction makes any sense. Yeah. And it's it's fascinating. What what a career! What a career these have had. With any luck, it will be about 50 years from launch when they power down, wow. which is incredible, right, for this. And that, that is very old technology in there. Um, one one thing that they discovered that I thought was really interesting is is the hostile environment outside the sun's protective bubble. So if you think about, uh, we talk about when we're uh, talking about astronauts going to the moon or to Mars, that once you leave the kind of protective pub bubble of the Earth's magnetic field and atmosphere, which protects us from a lot of really nasty stuff in space, then you need more shielding because you got to mm -hmm. worry about cosmic rays and all these things one of the things that vo the voyagers have taught us is that outside the sun's protective bubble there are like 
it, it's shielding us from like 80% of the cosmic rays that are in interstellar space. So uh, as dangerous as it is to go from Earth to Mars because of cosmic radiation, a huge amount of the cosmic radiation is actually not getting in because of the sun's magnetic field. So that's that's another just sort of like, that's a thing we learned. It's like, what is the composition of interstellar space? What is the frequency of cosmic rays? And, and the Voyager's... Uh, let us know that. I kind of assume, I actually don't know this off the top of my head, but I kind of assume that now when you're doing any kind of deep space mission like New Horizons, that probably part of the planning is how can we use this in the long term when you know it's done rendezvousing with things? Can we still use it for some of this kind of research? Because it's going to end up way out there. Mm-hmm. Um, what, you know, what can we do uh, and and the Voyagers are really interesting because you know they they did gravity assist around multiple planets, so they picked up a lot of speed too. So they they got out there fast. Anyway, it's a it's a fun story, and I just love the fact this is the first. The Voyagers are really the first spaceship that I remember, um, and the first. Yeah, I, I if I had to say what made me the most interested in space as a kid, it was the Voyager stuff because the Voyager stuff was coming back at a period in the seventies and eighties when I was perfectly receptive for this stuff and getting those spectacular pictures from Jupiter and Saturn um, just really left. And then later Uranus and Neptune, they they left an impact on me. So it's very cool to think that these little machines are still out there and, uh, and uh, still generating science. All right. We've got a lot more to talk about, but first I'll tell you about our first sponsor. That is Squarespace. When you're planning your next move, plan it with Squarespace because it lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and much more. Maybe you need an online store or you want to publish a blog or host a podcast, make a portfolio. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do all of that stuff and a bunch more. They have this really awesome commerce functionality. You can sell stuff and, and invoice and handle all the shipping. It's all great. And the best part is there's nothing to install. There are no patches to worry about. No server upgrades are needed. You don't have to become some sort of web admin guru because Squarespace has got it all covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help with anything. They allow you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. And of course, all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas from big screens down to small ones. I'm in the middle of building a Squarespace site, uh, actually for uh, a, a nonprofit here in town that I'm, I do some work with. They have a, a site on like this custom CMS. It's time to move something uh, that they can more easily manage, and it's been great to rebuild this site in Squarespace because there's so much I don't have to worry about. I can make sure that it looks good. I know it's going to look good on an iPhone, iPad, a desktop computer because those templates really take the the heavy lifting on its own shoulders. And what's great is you can do custom CSS. So the few places where I've wanted to tweak stuff, I can apply my sort of front-end web knowledge to Squarespace, but I don't have to unless, unless I want to. And I, I appreciate that flexibility. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash liftoff. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code LIFTOFF to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for the show. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash liftoff and the code LIFTOFF to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. It is time, Mr. Snell, for 
the SLS segment, space launch system segment explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. SLS segment. The second of four RS-25s. These are the old shuttle main engines. They're being repurposed and upgraded to be the core stage motors for the SLS. There'll be four of them. Uh, the second of those four has been installed on the first core stage of the, the first SLS. We've been talking about the stage for a while now. Remember they had it all done and they had to tip over uh, the basically the, the all the mounting hardware for the these motors and now these motors are being installed. Uh, this second engine is engine 2045. It flew on several shuttle missions, two of note. Uh, one, the 1998 Discovery mission where John Glenn returned to space. I was in uh, school for that. I remember very vividly about him uh, being in space and and what all that meant and the research they were doing because of his age. It's a really fascinating mission. And then uh, Engine 2045 flew again in 2006, again on Discovery, uh, the only shuttle launch to occur, occur on uh, July 4th. So got that going for that mission. <laughs> these uh, These early SLS launches will be reusing these RS-25s, but it's a one-way trip. So engine 2045 will not be coming back from its launch one way. So they're, you know, they're going out, going out in style, I guess, on a new rocket. Yeah. But this is the, this is the criticism of using these, these shuttle engines, right? Is, is they were built to be reused and they're just going to get thrown away. That's a bummer. Mm. Uh, you know, they're there and at least we're, NASA's taking advantage of the hardware they already have, which is a big part of the SLS design because it was designed to make it go faster. Not sure. That panned out, but it's <laughs> it is what it is at this point. So, uh, so the the, uh, the next two will be put on, and then we are just on our way towards that green run coming up uh, pretty soon. Yeah, I have some SLS segment news, Stephen. You do, I do. Uh, really nice piece from Ars Technica's Eric Berger about. Well, you know, this is a typical SLS segment story in that it's about politics and rockets. Uh, that's what it's all about, right? So we talk here in the SLS segment about the Exploration Upper Stage, which uh, does not have a catchy acronym. It's just the EUS, the Exploration Upper Stage. This is the powerful additional stage that is meant to be built kind of later on in the SLS time time frame where it's going to live on top of the... Uh, the uh, lower stage and make it the most powerful rocket system in the world. But it's not ready yet, and it's not going to be ready yet. In fact, Boeing is building both the main SLS and this upper stage, and um, it's basically been told, you know, focus on doing uh, what's called block one, which is this sort of like lightweight upper stage that's basically nothing. And, And it's like, get this done so that we can do these initial SLS missions without the big, big capacity second stage. Because of frustration with, stop me if you've heard this before, the slow pace and high cost of SLS development, um, NASA put out this RFP uh, request for proposal, basically saying, could we do something cheaper for the exploration upper stage? Eric Berger at ours has done the math of what the exploration upper stage is going to cost uh, separate from development cost. Uh, and this is based in part on these extended contracts that we've talked about for SLS in the past. And he says, basically, it seems like every exploration upper stage is going to cost $880 million, which Ooh. means that if you want to do a, an SLS launch with an exploration upper stage, every single one of those launches will cost $2 billion 
dollars. Oh, oh, man. And the money line from Eric Berger is, this is not the foundation of a sustainable space program. It's bottom, and he's absolutely right. Like that's that that's the kind of thing where you you fire that one off once to go to Mars, and then it never and then it never launches again. Or you do it one more time, and then like, but you can't keep doing it. It costs two billion dollars a shot. Now, for this cheaper version of the upper stage, Boeing and Lockheed Martin made a joint proposal to build it as designed with these RL-10 engines, these four RL-10 engines that they want to use. So this was sort of like, well, we could work on this together and, and build it based on the design. So they, they like said, okay, well, we'll, you know, we, we can maybe make it a little bit cheaper, but we're going we're gonna to do it this way. But what's interesting is that Blue Origin submitted an alternate response. And they said, here's what we want to do. We want to use a single engine, not four engines. It's going to be the BE-3U, which is basically a modified version of the engine they use on New Shepard. It is the upper stage engine for New Glenn, which is their orbital rocket that they're working on. It would have been much less expensive. However, NASA turned it down because of a few reasons. And uh, these are really interesting. So one is they want to be able to fly 10 tons of cargo plus the Orion capsule, and this would not have enough lift, lift capability to do that. They would need to change the door on the VAB, mm. the Vehicle Assembly Building in NASA, because this would be a little too tall. So that if you can imagine that, so they'd have to actually make a modification to the VAB to fit it. Now, like, it doesn't fit. Uh, your your proposal literally won't fit in our our building, and that uh, they said that the higher thrust of the rocket would mean that maybe it would shake, and 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 the g forces on the Orion capsule it might uh, threaten you know the the usability of its solar panels and of the the long term re reusability of the Orion capsule. Mm. But what Eric Berger points out here is. Um, what really happened is that NASA opened a competition for a cheaper upper stage, and then two years later, it told the bidder with the cheaper upper stage that it couldn't do it because, in the meantime, NASA and Boeing had already designed their rocket around Boeing, and you're not Boeing, so you don't fit. Um, but it's even worse because there is an interim upper stage that NASA is buying from the United Launch Alliance, which is itself a joint venture of Bo Boeing and Lockheed Martin. Right. And uh, Eric Berger makes the point that the United Launch Alliance could probably just make the exploration upper stage. Sure. Why won't it? It's because then Boeing would have to share the profits with Lockheed Martin ah. instead of keeping it all for themselves. So the end result, and this is just so brutal, uh, and, and read the article. It's in there in way, way more detail. But it's like the end result is NASA keeps paying Boeing for a project that is years behind schedule, billions over budget, still hasn't flown, and has now made a bunch of long-term contracts with Boeing for at least a decade to keep doing this. And uh, as Eric Berger pointed out, Let's hope Boeing builds rockets as well as it does government lobbying. Whew. Boom. Feisty. Yeah, it's, I mean, I get it, but it's one of those things where, where you see the rejection of the Blue Origin thing. You're like, well, you know, our hands are tied. There are all these things it doesn't do. And what Berger is pointing out is it doesn't do those things because you set those as things it needed to do because you and Boeing are making decisions like what. And so, that's, so there's two years, a two year long process that was pointless <laughs> uh anyway i don't know what's going to happen with the sls every time we talk about it i get a little more disappointing but mm -hmm. disappointed but the two billion per launch with the upper stage is this this is one of those areas i feel kind of resigned to the fact that sls is going to happen for a while 
Um, I'm not entirely convinced that the exploration upper stage as it currently exists will ever happen. That seems to be one of those areas where it's going to be a lot easier to point at it and go, that doesn't make sense anymore. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, th- there's a contract now to pay them a lot of money to make a bunch of SLS stuff. So who knows? Um, who knows where that's going to go? It would be easier to talk about this if NASA was more clear about what this upper stage is required for. Right. They, they, they've been very hand wavy about, like, do you need the EUS to do things like Gateway? Is it just to put big things uh, on track to Mars? Like, or, or, or to put, put people and equipment in one launch to Gateway or one launch to the lunar service to put things to, you know, people and equipment to Mars, uh, outer solar system stuff where, yeah, there are a lot. There's like a menu of it, of it but they don't want to say because there really isn't an answer to that question. Like they, it mm-hmm. could, it could do all sorts of things. And if they pin it down to something in particular, that is setting a NASA policy about like, well, look, we're going to go do that. And they're not prepared to do that yet. Par- partially because they can't in a reasonable time frame because they've told them not to work on the upper stage in order to hit the 2024 deadline. So frustrating. Maybe we should talk about something happier. Yeah. We have an anniversary to celebrate. Happy That's anniversary. Good. Thanks. What did I, what happened? <laughs> uh, this actually came from, from an Eric Berger tweet, which is kind of funny. A couple weeks ago, we passed the 30th anniversary of Galileo, and I thought it would be nice to take a break from SLS and Artemis and, and talk about really uh, one of the victories of the shuttle program, I think, is, is this mission, because Galileo was a spacecraft that studied Jupiter and its moons. It was launched from the payload bay of Atlantis uh, in 1989 aboard STS-34. Remember, the shuttle was designed to take things to and from low Earth orbit, and that included spacecraft. Uh, Several times over, Galileo is not alone in this. But, uh, of course, the International Space Station being the bulk of that hardware that was flown, Galileo was plucked out of the payload bay and sent on its way. Mm -hmm. But it was kind of a nice reminder of that capability that now if you want to do something like this, you are tied to a rocket launch. And if you need something like the SLS, then you're, you're on someone else's timetable where the shuttle gave NASA more flexibility in that. Uh, and that's something that we are not going to be regaining anytime soon, it looks like. Mm. Um, so I wanted to compare Galileo to Juno a little bit, the craft that's currently at Jupiter. Um, Juno has enormous solar panels, but this was not really uh, possible in the 80s, when this was being put together, uh, the the materials used and the the efficiencies they have now just weren't capabilities that were ready in the 1980s. Yeah. So this was uh, nuclear power, just like, just like Curiosity or the Voyagers, where you have uh, amount of uh, nuclear material creating heat, creating uh, power yeah. for the spacecraft. The radiothermal isotope generator mm-hmm. system. Yeah. Yeah little uh, space microwave. Yeah. And if there's an accident on the launch, you know, <laughs> radioactive material gets spewed all over the Yeah. Thankfully, it's coast not of Florida, very but, much, yeah. but not very much is still more than none. So mm-hmm. yeah. you don't want it. You don't want that at all. No. Uh, it, had, it had multiple instruments, including a CCD camera, spectrometers looking at near-infrared and ultraviolet light, um, a system for measuring particles in the solar wind, not unlike the solar, the Parker probe that's in action right now. So many missions have studied the solar wind, including this. And then it was also measuring uh, magnetic fields, which are complicated 
uh, when you get to Jupiter because Jupiter is so obviously so massive, but you also have a lot of moons. And so you have complicated competing magnetic fields. That's why some of those uh, ice ball moons out there are thought to have liquid water because of the, the, the internal friction of those moons getting stretched and pulled by these gravitational forces. So really learning about that up close. It also carried uh, the Galileo probe, which was dropped into Jupiter's atmosphere, like a little one-way uh, <laughs> ejection seat situation. Mm-hmm. It collected data for about an hour before, of course, breaking up. Um, I did not know that about this before reading this. I did not know Galileo had a, had a probe buddy, but, but yeah, it did. Yeah, this is in many ways Galileo, because uh, we, we just recently on this podcast lamented the end of the Cassini mission. And this is really Cassini's predecessor. We did a, there was a big... Uh, Jupiter planetary mission, long-term Jupiter planetary mission, and then the next one was the long-term Saturn planetary mm-hmm. mission. So you can you can sort of view Galileo as Cassini's big brother. Now the probe on Cassini, you know, went to Titan and was uh, the the Huygens probe and was you know landed on a moon in the outer solar system. It was pretty awesome. Uh, this is an earlier mission, and so they were sort of again, experimenting with these sorts of things. And they're like, well, why don't we shoot something in the atmosphere and see if we can get some data back, um, radioing back from from down below while we're up above. So, mm-hmm. you know, it is, it is, yeah, yeah, this is the Jupiter flagship mission before there was the big uh, Saturn flagship mission. That's right. And like Cassini, Galileo itself uh, was destroyed during a controlled impact with Jupiter in September 2003. Uh, it was not sterilized before leaving Earth. They don't want to contaminate any moons that could harbor life. Again, right. just like Cassini, right? You don't want to yep. put spacecraft down someplace that that you're interfering with later discoveries. Yeah, so you you uh, you don't want to leave your garbage, you know? No, <laughs> leave only pictures, take only memories, whatever. That's right. I don't know what you take and leave, but you know what I'm what you're saying. <laughs> leave only yeah. leave only landers. Uh, take your and and throw away your space probes in the planet. <laughs> before you go uh, but it it's up. yeah similarly multi-year mission um and uh, huge amounts of data collected um that's because keep in mind the other thing to keep in mind is so many of our our planetary encounters in the outer solar system are flybys like new horizons was by pluto for a very small amount of time and uranus and neptune the same we've never orbited them so with jupiter and saturn um, the Voyagers gave us a lot of information, but they were flybys. And Galileo and and later Cassini, they're in system, and it's just an avalanche of data compared to a flyby. A lot of data was collected. Of course, lots of photos, lots of measurements, but there are some uh, notable achievements. It made the first observation of ammonia clouds in another atmosphere. Uh, remember, we talked about uh, outer solar system moons several years ago, about how Io is extremely volcanic. It's a very uh, harsh, <laughs> harsh place to be, and there's extreme interactions with the the electrically charged particles from Jupiter's atmosphere and the solar wind. Io is a mess, and mm-hmm. a lot of that was discovered by Galileo. And I think probably the most uh, I don't know if it's the most important, but the one that that stands out to me is evidence of those ice ball moons having liquid water under their surfaces that started being discovered here. Again, Voyager flies by and we look at Io with the shots we got of Io and of Europa and Ganymede, and like especially Europa. And it's like, interesting, very interesting. Uh, and you start to theorize, but like there's the theorizing and then there's the being able to send something out there to hang around 
and confirm all of these ideas or disprove them. And that's what Galileo was able to do. Uh, there's also a really interesting part of this mission. So it flew by back by Earth in 1990 as part of a gravity assist maneuver. Again, you got to speed up to get out to the outer solar system. This space probe had a set of tools planned and designed in part by Carl Sagan. And the, the experiment was, can we detect life on Earth? Which is a really, really interesting question. Because, of course, we know life is here. But the question is, can we objectively detect it from uh, a, a probe flying by? Because if we do this and we can't, that, that leads to interesting questions about our instrumentation. And are we missing things in other places? Just a really interesting part of this experiment that, again, I mean, Carl Sagan did so many interesting things in his career. This is definitely on that short list for me. Yeah, this is this is I wish we did more of these. They're very expensive, but and, and I like the idea of what Juno is, right? Which is like it's not a flagship enormous mission kind of thing, but it still gets us something that's hanging around at Jupiter because you just get a lot more if you've if you're able to hang out there instead of just zipping past. Um and to wrap it up, Galileo was also the first spacecraft to have a a close encounter with an asteroid, which is something we don't think much about today because we've done a lot more of it. And, you know, we're collecting samples <laughs> from all these different remote locations. But in the early 90s, this was this was breaking stuff. So Galileo performed its first asteroid encounter by any spacecraft and uh, took a bunch of pictures and beamed it back. Rock solid mission. So thumbs up. Happy 30th to Galileo. All right. We're going to uh, talk about For All Mankind, but you can tell us about our second sponsor. Sure. This episode is brought to you in part by Eero. Uh, if you want to binge watch your favorite TV shows, oh, I like this uh, lead in to the Apple TV Plus talk. If you want to binge watch your shows from anywhere in your house without interruption, guess what? You need Eero. Eero will blanket your whole home with fast, reliable Wi-Fi. It eliminates poor coverage, dead spots, and buffering. You can have consistently strong signal wherever you need it. I had all sorts of problems with edge cases, literally edge cases in my house, where I've got smart devices at the corners of my house, far away from where my cable modem is, far away from where my router was. And after setting up my Eero network, I have Wi-Fi fast reliable Wi-Fi everywhere on my, I will admit, kind of, you know, small, but still on my property. I have a backyard. I have a side yard that has, uh, you know, an irrigation controller on it. They all have the Wi-Fi access they need. And that means, yes, I can sit in the backyard and watch a baseball game. Well, not now because baseball season's over, but like watch a baseball game live, like in my hammock. I can do that. No buffering. It's easy. Eero is the Wi-Fi that your home deserves. There's an all-new Eero starting at just $99. It sets up in just minutes. You plug it straight into your modem or your router box. You can manage it from a very simple app, which lets you do cool stuff like pause the Wi-Fi when everybody in the family is eating dinner. You can get alerts if any device that you don't know tries to join your network. Eero is the solution for Wi-Fi problems like dead spots and buffering, and you can get yours fixed. All of your problems will go away as soon as tomorrow by going to eero.com slash liftoff and enter code liftoff at checkout to get free overnight shipping with your order. That's E-E-R-O, eero.com slash liftoff, code liftoff at checkout to get your Eero delivered with free overnight shipping. Got to use the URL to get the offer, eero.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff. Thank you to Eero for supporting liftoff and Relay FM. All right. So For All Mankind, part of Apple's new Apple TV Plus streaming service that launched last week, 
as we're recording this, I think three episodes are up, and then they'll they'll do the rest of the season uh, as weekly releases. Yeah, on Fridays. On Friday. Yeah, I didn't know what day it was, so that's that's good. That's good to know. Uh, I don't know where which direction we want to take this. I mean, the premise of the show is interesting. Uh, basically, the idea here is that leading up to uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin stepping foot on the moon, that they are basically uh, beaten by just a matter of weeks by the Soviet Union. Yeah. And I mean, it's an alternate history story. They've obviously done a lot of research about this era. One of the things that I keep asking myself as somebody who has read a few books about this topic is I wonder if the show will at any point get into the point of departure from the Soviet perspective, because the first three episodes, it's all about NASA. It's all about the American space program. And that's fine. But Anytime you watch an alt history thing where history diverges at a a particular point, you do sort of ask the question, how did that happen? What was the divergence? And the show, at least in the first three episodes, does not show you that. It's just the Russians do stuff. They're completely off camera. Um, We don't have any Soviet characters of any kind. You know, is it that Korolev lived into the late 60s and was able to push his agenda forward it's unclear maybe they'll get there that would i i'm kind of interested in that but the point is that after apollo 10 which happened exactly as we described it in episode 99 of liftoff um after apollo 10 so they they take the limb out and they go down but they don't land because snoopy is a little too heavy and you know and and it's outside of the safety range and and this is not meant to be the mission where they land it's meant to be the mission where they do a trial run for the moon landing and then they come back up uh and they go home and in for all mankind what happens next is that in late june after apollo 10 and before apollo 11 the soviet union surprises the world by landing a cosmonaut alexei leonov on the lunar surface and he's the first man on the moon and then from the show goes from there and diverges because obviously this is a uh, a political black eye for richard nixon and for america and it's a big thing for the soviet union we're here in the height of the cold war and um it's all meant the the whole divergence is really meant because ron moore wanted to do a show about exciting nasa space exploration and the problem is that after Apollo, it just kind of fell off for and the commitment went away and then NASA was never the same. So he he wanted to do a show about what if the political will was still there throughout the 70s and beyond driven by competition with the Russians to uh, to keep the your foot on the gas, basically, in terms of space exploration. And that's that's where this show is is clearly going. I think they do a good job of of blending actual history and actual players in history with the uh, the fiction that they have cr- they've injected into it. Like if you didn't know what actually happened, I think it'd be kind of hard to tell the seams. And I, I like that about the show that the parts where they diverge from what actually happened feel and seem like very naturally what would have happened. Right. And I think I think they've done a good job of, of bridging those things. I watched the first episode with my wife, and uh, then watched episode two and three yesterday at work. But you know, several times she asked me, "Like, okay, like, did that happen, or like, is that is that you know representative of of that sort of decision making? Those sorts of questions." And you know, she's pretty familiar with Apollo, but not you know like we are or our listeners. And 
uh, I found it really interesting that she couldn't quite tell where the seams were. Yep. Yeah, it's they they did a lot of research and I, I appreciate it. Like the details of Apollo 10 are really good. Um, the one of the things that they, they made the decision to do that I thought was clever is most of the characters are named are the are the people who are the actual people like the you know it, it, it's deke slayton who's in charge of astronauts and 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 all of that right it, it, it's all uh neil and buzz and michael collins are on apollo 11 none of that is changed um but they take a light touch with the real people because what they don't want to do is show real people doing fictional things what they did do is um change the Apollo 10 astronauts to these characters with different names, even though it's still Charlie Brown and Snoopy, uh, because rather than it being John Young, Gene Cernan and Tom Stafford, they, they want to take these characters to some different places and they didn't want to have your main character who you're fictionalizing be an actual historical figure. So those characters have different names and are not the same people, even though they've got sort of similar biographies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but everybody around them, like Werner von Braun is just Werner von Braun and, and, uh, Deke Slayton is Deke Slayton and none of that is changing the, you know, Deke and the guys at mission control, like though the, the, and Nixon and other historical figures are themselves like they're not. And I think that's good because it would be really weird if it was like, well, the crew of Apollo 11, who's, you know, John Legstrong <laughs> and uh, B. Aldman are right. like, no, don't, no, right? Like, it's too weird. Or the president, President Jones is very angry that we did not get to the moon, does not have the same thing as like, no, it's mm-hmm. Nixon. It's Nixon. And what would Nixon have done? Because the show's trying to really tell the story of like, well, what if? What if this had happened and follow it through? And so they fictionalized a couple of the characters uh, you know all the all the main characters are fictional characters but all the supporting characters are are real people yeah i i like that a lot and it it gives it uh like you said it gives it gives it a weight and a realness that it wouldn't have otherwise and it's interesting too that we, the at least so far the story is very focused on those apollo 10 astronauts and, yeah. and a couple of which are going to be on F- apollo 15 which we haven't seen yet in the three episodes but the Apollo 11 crew, which everyone is so, they're so well known, at least so far, play a very minor role. Apollo 11 itself has a pretty minor role uh, until the very end of episode one. And then the series moves past that very quickly. And I, I think that's good, especially the show coming out this year, to spend a lot of time on the first American moon landing would be a, a weird a weird move, I think, given that it's the 50th anniversary and we've already kind of been soaked in it. Yeah, and, and in this in this world, it's just the first American moon landing. He's the first, Neil Armstrong's the first American man on the moon, right. not the first man on the moon. And that makes a difference. And they in, instead, they take, the show takes, without getting into any deep spoilers here, the, the show knows how familiar you are with the story of Apollo 11. And so it uses that, and without again, without going into details, Apollo 11 doesn't quite go down the way it actually did. And I think that that's the show saying, ah, you see, history is not happening the way you think. Mm-hmm. Anything could happen now. Any 
anything could be different. So don't be complacent that you think like you know what will happen next because this is a different world and it's going to have different uh, different things happen to it. And yeah, yeah, this show does telegraph. The fact that the Apollo 10 astronauts are main characters suggests that they have an interesting role to play, whether it's a leading role or whether it's being kind of uh, attached to various kind of through lines of the story so that there's always a, an observer or a participant who we know. However, they decide to sort of thread that through, um, you know, obviously they're going to have a big impact because they're the characters that have been chosen to be the main characters of the show. What do you think about the pacing of the show so far? I saw some complaints on Twitter that people felt it was it was slow and drawn out. And as someone who is, I've seen both. I actually saw a complaint the other day that they thought that it went too that it went too fast, <laughs> and it was going like the going through the the yeah. history of it too fast too. So huh. I think everybody's got a everybody. Well, you know, I I didn't have a problem with it because I feel like every episode is its own thing and it's trying to tell the story in in little pieces. And you know, I guess everybody can have their judgment about about how what, how they want to have the show be paced. But I. Uh, the three episodes I saw, I I liked it. I think you need to set that world, and you really need to get people's head around the fact that this is a that this is an alternate history. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, the pace does pick up in episode three. I, I feel like the first two episodes really do have to lay a lot of groundwork in terms of what this world is and how it's going to work. And that episode three is is unconstrained from that in a way. It's like it's free to just fly and be its own weird thing that it is. Um, but uh, but I didn't have a problem with it. Like I was, I was, I'm, I'm the target audience for this show, but I, I, I didn't have a problem with the pacing. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, if you look at other movies and TV shows about the Apollo timeline, like parts of that program did move very slowly and there were parts that happened really quickly. And I think the show does a fine job of sort of moving in and out of those phases as it deems necessary. Like you said, the, the, episode two, but especially three, the pacing does feel like it changes because you understand, okay, this is, uh, this is sort of the world that we're living in. And, and I, I think too, I think it's, I think it's episode three, they make a time jump and that, you know, like the episode covers, you know, several months and I think it's fine the way they handled it. I don't have any real complaints about the pacing at all. I just seen some, some comments from people, uh, wondering about that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I viewed it as yeah through the lens of from the Earth to the Moon and f- through the lens of Apollo thirteen, which you know I kind of think, I kind of think that that's really the the elevator pitch for this is Apollo thirteen, the TV show. What if like it, space kept space stuff kept on happening after Apollo thirteen, and it was all exciting like that, um, and you know into future decades it was still like that can we do a show that has that level of intrigue about like back on earth and also in space um and that's so it fits that's what it is that's what it's trying to be yeah so i mean all in all i've been i've been happy with it i think it's a really interesting premise i think to to play with a story in a world that we know so well is is really fascinating i think as as the show moves forward in time from apollo 10 11 12 you know those early missions and by definition, diverges more from the timeline that we know, I think it's only going to get more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the potential here too, is like where exactly are they going to take this and how different does it get and how invested do we get in these characters? And I'm looking forward to the ride because I I like the fact that this feels like a show who uh, the, the people making the show get the era, they get the technology, they get what the show 
um, you know, what the space stuff is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. They're going to get it right. And yet they also have a background um, like Ron Moore, who did Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica. Like they are also people with science fiction credibility to do the thing that science fiction novels do really well, but you don't see it as well a lot of the time on TV, which is this alt history thing, which is what if we take this world and we diverge it and then we keep making logical steps that are backed by science and backed by our knowledge of the era and um, it's funny because I'm also watching HBO's Watchmen and it's similarly, it's a, a an alternate history uh, setting. And um, I, I don't see that stuff enough and I really like it. So I'm, I'm thinking that they, they, as they become, as they're forced to extrapolate more and diverge even further from uh, the, you know, original point of divergence in the 60s, uh, that they're going to be able to do that while still sort of like having it be a realistic take on, on uh, how things would play out. Right. Like they're not going to say, oh, and it's the 80s and we have ray guns now that they're not going to do that. Cool. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. I'm going to keep watching it. It is the only Apple TV Plus show that I've checked out so far. But I know um, if people want to hear more about your thoughts on the service, you and Mike spoke about it on Upgrade this week. Yeah. And he he watched everything. I've only seen For All Mankind and and one episode of The Morning Show. So I don't have uh, the Snoopy in space. We should probably watch Snoopy in space, you and me, because, you know, that'd be fun. And Snoopy. And uh, I'm going to talk with Federico on Connected Tomorrow. He has seen uh, The Morning Show and a couple others. So across Relay, we're kind of talking about this content. It's really interesting. But yeah. I wanted to get some time with you on this show. For sure. Uh, to talk about For All Mankind. And, and I think we will probably check back in with it once the season's over. Maybe here, maybe on someplace on The Incomparable. Yeah. To give a, a full review. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that about does it for this episode. If you want to find links to stuff we spoke about, they're on the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 111. While you're there, you can get in touch uh, with feedback or follow-up via email. There's also a link on that page over to our Tumblr where we post links and videos. Really interesting video by CGP Gray, uh, our buddy, about the uh, the way that the planets orbit around the sun <laughs> and which planet is closest to the other planets most of the time. Like really, really interesting. I'm just going to put that video straight into the show notes this week because... It, yeah. it it blew my mind it, a little it, bit. It is it is mind blowing, but you also have to watch it thinking it's mind blowing for a very specific definition, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But if you make that specific definition of which planet is closest to you for the most amount of time, then it's it's mind blowing. But that yeah. but that's a very particular like very specific definition to have. So yeah, yeah, it's good. So go check that out if you didn't see it. It, it was it was really fascinating. If you want to get in touch on Twitter, you can do that too. Jason is there as Jay Snell, and you can follow me on Twitter as ISMH. Our next episode in two weeks, we'll be talking about Apollo 12. So we're excited to get uh, get back to that. And until then, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.